Extraordinary Districts, Season 2, Episode 2, Exposing and Learning from Success. Extraordinary Districts, a podcast series from the Education Trust that investigates what ordinary school districts do to get extraordinary results. If you're a principal, a superintendent, a mayor, a member of a school board, or just someone who thinks that schools need to do better, this podcast is for you. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe that children can learn to high levels no matter what their background, and we're going to school districts that demonstrate how. Today, exposing and learning from success. This is the second season, and if you didn't listen to the first season, I should tell you that we start with data. We look for districts that serve children of color or children from low-income families that are either high-performing or rapidly improving. And then we try to figure out what they are doing so that others can learn from their expertise. You won't hear a magic formula or an easy fix in this podcast. What you will hear are educators and others reflecting thoughtfully about what they have learned. Educators like John Daniel. It's hard to make changes and make them quickly in a school system because it's a large amoeba that moves and and has interlocking parts. In a lot of ways, this podcast is about figuring out what some of those interlocking parts of the amoeba are. I said we start with data. Specifically, we use a data analysis by Sean Reardon at Stanford University as our starting point. He has put all but the tiniest of the country's school districts on a common scale according to both the socioeconomics of the students and academic achievement. In general, Reardon has found that as poverty increases, academic achievement tends to decrease. He has also found that most districts have large gaps in achievement between their white students and their students of color. But underneath those averages are outlier districts, districts where students come from low-income homes and are high-achieving, districts with small or non-existent gaps in achievement among student groups. We are going to those outlier districts to see what they have to teach the rest of us. If you want to know more about Sean Reardon and his work and where it fits into the educational research landscape, go to www.edtrust.org slash Extraordinary Districts, to find links to his work as well as to the very first episode of Season 1, which includes an interview with Reardon. In Season 1, Reardon's data led us to three districts that popped out as outliers. The first was Lexington, Massachusetts, which leads the nation in academic achievement. Lexington is a mostly white, very wealthy suburb of Boston. It's always been high-achieving, but it didn't vault to the top of the country until it closed the proficiency gap between its white and black students, demonstrating a link between excellence and equity. The second district we went to was Steubenville. Steubenville is a small, impoverished city in Appalachian, Ohio, where the third and fourth graders score toward the top of the nation. There we heard from educators how careful they are about choosing and implementing programs that help them achieve excellence. The third district we went to was Chicago, Illinois, where students make six years of academic growth in the five years between third and eighth grade. 
No other large or even medium-sized district makes that kind of growth. And we heard about the careful work educators there have done in understanding and acting on data and research and what has been done to ensure that schools have principals who understand how to lead improvement. Equity and excellence, careful selection of programs, acting on data and research, investing in the knowledge and skill of school principals. These are some of the big themes from last season. But those are just three school districts. We wanted to know if we would find the same kinds of things if we went to rural school districts or suburban districts that aren't as wealthy as Lexington, Massachusetts. Again, using Sean Reardon's data as a starting point, we were able to identify some districts that we think hold a lot of lessons for anyone who thinks schools can do better than they are doing today. And thanks to a grant from Overdeck Family Foundation, we are excited to be able to bring you this second season of Extraordinary Districts. This season will be a little bit different from the first because each episode will be paired with a second one in which we will convene an expert panel. Panel members will help tease out the implications of what the districts are doing, and they'll help us think about what educators, advocates, and policymakers might do differently if we fully absorb the lessons taught by these school districts. So let's get started. I said that no other large or even medium-sized district can boast of as much academic growth as Chicago, but there are some small districts that do. Lane, Oklahoma comes close. Its students grow almost six academic years in the five calendar years from third through eighth grade. It's a small district where about 40% of students are Native American and 75% meet the qualifications for free and reduced price lunch. Since Reardon's analysis, which goes through 2015, Lane has improved its performance, particularly in its early grades. In 2018, for example, 88% of its third graders were proficient or advanced in reading, compared to 69% of Oklahoma's third graders. I wanted to know more, so I flew to Oklahoma City, drove a couple of hours southeast to Atoka, and headed out to Lane. Continue on Oklahoma 3 East for 10 miles. On your way to Lane Public School, traffic is light as usual. Lane is a K-8 district, meaning it only goes through 8th grade. Its graduates go on to high schools in nearby districts. Lane's district covers about 200 square miles, which still only provides enough kids for one school of 300 students. And even some of them come in from outside the district, for reasons we'll hear about later. The original one-story building was built more than 100 years ago, and when additional space was needed, they built another, and another, and a couple more. Most of the classrooms, particularly for the youngest children, are enormous, which allows for lots of whimsical play spaces with paper castles and child-sized living room setups complete with cardboard fireplaces. On the outside, though, the school is a bit of a maze of ramps and doors and covered wooden sidewalks. In addition, there are fields, a large garden, a barn, and a greenhouse, all of which is to say that Lane is pretty much as rural as you can get. When I first called Lane, I was directed to talk with Sharon Holcomb, who is both the curriculum director and the special education director for the district. She invited me to visit. When I arrived, I realized that her titles don't really cover all she does. She writes grant applications, she arranges for professional development, and for a long time she's been the liaison to the state's Department of Education. I've taught or worked at the school for 28 years. I went to school here as a student through eighth grade, so it's home to me. I live about three and a half miles from here, so 
this is where I've always been. She is the district's institutional memory. She says that Lane has always been known to have a deep commitment to its students. It wasn't always known for its academic achievement. But about 15 years ago, a superintendent arrived who was determined to make Lane high-performing. Roland Smith left the district about a year ago, and I wasn't able to track him down to take part in this episode. We're going to hear a fair amount about what he did because folks at Lane attribute quite a bit of the improvement to him. But I want to prepare you first. If you're looking for something surprising or innovative or disruptive or any of the buzzwords that circle the topic of school improvement, you might be a little disappointed. Okay, so are you ready? Here's what Sharon Holcomb said happened. We met as teams, grade-level teams. That doesn't sound like much, but it was the beginning step of a long process of improvement. One reason it was significant is that Lane is so small that there is often only one teacher at a grade level, so it's not like there's ever been a first-grade team or a second-grade team who could meet together. So we did second grade and below. We made that group of teachers a team, and we looked at their scores, their data, and tried to see where we had holes. What do we from year to year see as a whole. And then we looked into getting staff develop or professional development in that area to fulfill that gap. We did the same thing with third through fifth and through sixth through eighth. It's not that teachers hadn't wanted to meet before, but educators around the country will recognize the importance of the next thing Holcomb told me. But I think what he did that was differently is he gave them the time to do that. We were out on Fridays at two o'clock and that from two till whatever time we left, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, whatever time it was, that's what we did. That was our goal, was focusing on that data and determining where the students were weak and where we were weak as teachers or as a school and what we needed to do to improve so we could provide a better education for our students. Finally, the teachers had the time to look deeply at assessment data for the information they held about how much students were learning and where the weaknesses were in their teaching. This kind of work can be uncomfortable. That was probably one of his favorite sayings, we leave our ego at the door. When we walk into this room, we're just all teachers. By meeting together to look at data, they were seeing who was strong in what area and thus exposing and learning from expertise within the district. But it turned out they didn't have all the answers they needed. So the next thing they did was to look for expertise outside of Lane. And we looked at data again, we looked at the state data and tried to see what schools in our area that had similar demographics as far as special education, free and reduced lunch, those type things that were doing well. And Cottonwood was closest school to us that was performing excellent. And we contacted Mr. Daniels and asked if we could come and tour and, and just get you know an idea of what they were doing. And he was most welcoming and let us come. Cottonwood, Oklahoma. Now stick with us, because in order to understand what happened at Lane, you need to understand what happened at Cottonwood. In fact, it's so important to Lane's story that I actually spent a lot of my time in Oklahoma at Cottonwood. Cottonwood is another K-8 district about 25 miles away from Lane. It's so small that it isn't even part of Sean Reardon's database. Still, it usually has about 200 students because 90% of its enrollment comes from outside the district. We'll get to why they come in a couple of minutes. But first I want to say that Cottonwood has been a high-performing district for a long time. In fact, its high performance drew me to visit in 2009. 
Back then, I was on a search for high-performing schools that served students of color and students from low-income families, and Cottonwood Elementary, which is the only school in the district, was one of the top-performing schools in the state. Like Lane, somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of the students are Native American, mostly Choctaw. Eligibility for free and reduced-priced meals fluctuate, but somewhere around 75 to 80 percent of students usually qualify. Also like Lane, Cottonwood's original school building was built more than 100 years ago. But instead of building additions, the Cottonwood District bought pre-manufactured steel buildings at $13 a square foot delivered, the kind often used as barns. So Cottonwood's campus almost has the appearance of a modern farm. If you go to our website, you can see pictures, www.edtrust.org slash districts. Look for Season 2, Episode 2. Through the years, I've kept in touch with Cottonwood's superintendent. My name is John Daniel, and I'm the superintendent, principal, bus driver, maintenance, whatever they need, substitute. Daniel has been watching Lane's improvement ever since Lane's superintendent first visited. He told me about when Roland Smith came and went to one of Cottonwood's old-fashioned classrooms that has a stage and steps. So I took him up and showed him showed him Miss Looney's classroom, and, and, and I said, you know, this is the writing they're doing. And he said, second grade? I said, yeah. And she said, we're learning the difference, and we're writing nonfiction, and then we're writing fiction. And he said, they know the difference? And she said, oh, yeah. And she, he goes, can I ask them? She'll step right down there and ask them. And so they, she stepped down there and got an earful. And so he came back, and he said, I, I'm doing it wrong. He said, I didn't realize that they have to do this by the time, you know. He said, you know, the third grade was doing bad, so you get on the third grade teachers. Well, it's not the third grade's fault when they're coming in behind. You know, it's we have to start teaching what we need to downstairs. I mean, really, I mean, really an eye-opening experience for him, I think. Here is Sharon Holcomb again, along with Priscilla Jackson, one of Lane's kindergarten teachers. They're talking about what a turning point that visit was for Lane's superintendent. His background was secondary, so he just assumed, as, from being a high school science teacher, that an basically experience. you were a babysitter. Yeah, it was an experience. experience. You were just a babysitter, and you, you know the teaching important. didn't actually start until they got much older. And and he that, started visiting other schools like Cottonwood that were doing so well, and seeing what the importance they were placing on their early childhood programs, and coming back and saying. Oh, okay. You really and need that foundation. We do need you. Do need this, and you're you know, and started getting getting that support in there. And I think that really turned a lot of things around. After that first visit, Lane's superintendent started sending teachers to Cottonwood. In fact, they still go. The kindergarten and first grade teachers may go one day, and then a few days later, second and third may go together. Then we come back and we staff. Then, what did you see? What did you see? on your visit that we could take away from there and we could make work right now. You know, what can start working next month? And then we would say, what, you know, what is it we need to work on for next year? And not to replicate the program per se exactly, but to make it work for our district and our kids within our teachers, because we're not exactly like Cottonwood. We're similar, but we're not exactly. So that's what we tried to do. I want to note that it's not easy for educators to deliberately learn from others in this kind of way. For one thing, school and district leaders don't always create the time and culture required. 
Yes, and he allowed them to go to other schools and not feel guilty about being out of the classroom and not feel like they weren't doing their job or or not making them feel bad that they didn't already know how to be an excellent reading teacher, that maybe you came out of college prep, but you didn't. You know, you don't have that understanding. Yes, so it wasn't a guilty of... you know, you're you don't know this. He was he was supportive of that and let's find what you need. And I should say that not all schools and districts are willing to share their secrets. But Lane's teachers found a welcome at Cottonwood. They were open to share ideas, to share resources, to say you Anything. are doing a good job. Exactly. I mean, they weren't judging. They weren't, to me, whenever mm-hmm. we went, whenever I went with teachers, that was what I saw. They were just, come on in, sit down right here and let me show you. What they saw at Cottonwood was what I saw back in 2009, very sophisticated early reading instruction that ensured that students could hear the 44 sounds or phonemes in the English language and then map those sounds onto the 26 letters. That's known as phonemic awareness and phonics. And the most efficient way to teach children to get words off the page is to directly and systematically teach phonemic awareness and phonics. Because there are so many parts to it, Cottonwood teachers keep careful records of what kids know and what they still need to learn. The teachers knew the kids. And I don't mean just knew them. They knew what, exactly what skill they were weak in. And so that was something, and we can show you, we have data charts now. And that was something we didn't do several years ago, but we do do now. Teachers at Cottonwood do a lot of other things to help children read fluently and with comprehension. They teach vocabulary, they build children's background knowledge, they teach them to write coherent sentences and paragraphs. They try to captivate them with the magic of learning about the world through the printed page and the wonder of a good story. They make sure they read a lot. But they know that somewhere between half and two-thirds of children will always have trouble reading if they don't get systematic and explicit instruction in phonemic awareness and phonics. When they struggle enough, children are often diagnosed as being dyslexic. This is what Cottonwood's Daniel has to say about that. The cure for dyslexia is phonics. It's one of the main tools to get them through. Now I'm going to back up. What I've said and what Daniel said about the importance of teaching phonemic awareness and phonics is not controversial among cognitive scientists or the majority of reading researchers, but it is controversial in many of the colleges and universities that train teachers. Many education professors teach that explicit and systematic phonics instruction interferes with developing a love of reading and literature. They say that learning to read is comparable to learning to speak. They say that if children are read to and surrounded by wonderful literature, they will be motivated to learn to read without having to focus on the boring mechanics of phonics. That approach to teaching reading is called whole language. It dominated American schools in the 1980s and 1990s and is still widely taught in teacher preparation programs, though many have modified a bit to what they call balanced literacy. Daniel told me of a conversation he had with someone who works with low-performing schools throughout Oklahoma. She goes, John, they're still teaching whole language. They don't understand it. Here's the problem with the whole language theory. The human brain evolved over millions of years to process spoken language. That's why we don't really have to teach babies to imitate sounds and words as long as their hearing is intact. But reading and writing are brand new, evolutionarily speaking. Humans have only been reading and writing for about 5,000 years. 
Asking our brains to figure out the meaning of little squiggles on a page requires a fair amount of effort. Most of us have to pay a lot of attention to the mechanics before reading becomes effortless, which is to say, surrounding children with language and books isn't enough. At Cottonwood, they understand that. Teachers spend a great deal of time ensuring that students are comfortable manipulating the sounds and symbols of spoken and written language. They start with the three-year-olds. J. J. M. M. Do they match? No. Do they ma okay. Next person. They didn't match. We still have not found a match yet. We gotta find at least one before we go. Okay, Lizzie. M. Oh, where was the M? Where was the M? M. Yay! High five! We got one match. All right, we can. <laughs> That's the sound of Cottonwood's three-year-olds playing a letter-matching game on a whiteboard. And here we are talking with the four-year-old class. What are you guys working on right now? Well, a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything? We're learning. Well, part of us are working on, like, how many words are in a sentence. Um, how many words are in a sentence? Uh, a bunch. <laughs> a bunch. It depends on the sentence, doesn't it? <laughs> As well as playing, learning to take turns, and all the socialization parts of preschool, children at Cottonwood work on letters, sounds, vocabulary, stories, and how language is used, so that when children enter kindergarten, they are ready to start reading. Here's Daniel talking to one of Cottonwood's kindergarten teachers. How many letters and sounds do y'all want by the end of the year? Are you by the end of the year? Yeah. Mr. Daniel, we're reading. Is it true? Question. So, <laughs> my name is Laura Snow, and I'm a kindergarten teacher at Cottonwood Elementary. And the other uh, kindergarten teacher is Miss Madden. Snow has taught for 31 years, 13 at Cottonwood. By the end of the first nine weeks, mine have pretty much got them mastered. Uh, and Miss Madden, she's got two. Actually, one new one that came in that hasn't mastered his. Uh, but, I mean, it's like these kids come in, they know their letters, they know their sounds. When children don't know what they should, they get quick little interventions at recess. <laughs> we blow the whistle and we have our flashcards, and then uh, they go through their flashcards really quick, and if that's all they need to work on, they go back and play with some. Go get, go get Sunny, and they'll go get Sunny and say, go, oh, and the kids know. They know that when... A kid comes and gets you. You come over there and you, you work on your skills. I don't have time during class to, to review with those kids. Now, those kids that have got it, they don't need to come over there and do their letters and sounds every day. But those kids that don't need to do it every day. You can hear the sense of urgency Snow brings to teaching. Our goal, mine and Miss Madden's goal, and every teacher in here is we got to see how much we can get in these kids before they leave at the end of the year. Everyone at Cottonwood has that sense of urgency. Here's the second grade teacher, Georgianne Looney. Because reading involves the, the language, the writing, the testing. All of that needs to go on together, just like I, you saw how I did these things. That takes time to present it, teach it, and then if they don't get to apply it when I teach it, then we got problems the next day. I want them applying whatever I teach them that day. In her second grade class, children learn the mechanics of writing, but she is also using writing to help children understand what they are reading. 
This is where I'm teaching them to write sentences, to get their information, to go back and uh, uh, to the resources. And they are reading. Here's Cottonwood's librarian, Susan Eddings. We have an open policy for our kids. So, you know, some schools have schedules where this class can... Ours come in and out. I may have some kids over here, especially the smaller ones, three times a day because they're only allowed to check out two books at a time. Terry Burkeen, the former superintendent, built in a collegiality here. Work. I mean, she's the one that laid that foundation that, you know, every minute with a child is the most important, and we have to pour into every minute. You know, they're on recess doing their station, doing their intervention stations and with the kids and pulling them in. And so, I mean, every minute is used. But teaching children to read, teaching them math, science, geography, history, music, and art is not all there is to Cottonwood. They recently got a grant to help teachers with what is often called social-emotional learning. Here's the veteran second-grade teacher, Ms. Looney, saying that as a result of recent training, she has changed her practice. She is talking about how she used to react if something bad happened to a student. She told me about a recent incident with one of her students. He couldn't get his mother, and his dad finally told him she was in jail. So that's how he found out. And so he was coming to me, and it was that a long ways for him to come. We worked this year on him. A long ways for him to come and tell me. He said he might not get his work done because he was, he was worried about something. And he told me, he, had, he said, I need to talk to someone. I said, who do you want to talk to? And he said, you, which is talking to me. He'd never done that before. So we went up to the stage area, and that's when he started telling me about what happened. And so I told him, I said, you know, that makes you feel really bad, doesn't it? It just makes you feel hard. And I went like that. He looked up at me because my natural thing would be try talking out of that feeling. You can't do that. You can't do that when those kids are down there. I'm learning that. And so I did that with him, and he looked at me. Yes, he said. And he was talking about how he felt with his mom and all this stuff. So then he went down to the floor to do his work. He did it all. Looney, who has been teaching for decades, is exemplifying something that kindergarten teacher Snow told me. Well, there's people that's been here a long, 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 long time. It's like they're always willing to learn something new. When we have our staff and people come in, mm-hmm. I know we're tired and we're just like with our tongues hanging out, but it's like, oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. When I came here, I... I really didn't understand the whole aspect of a child, even though I knew I was a good person and I had kids. I really didn't understand that there's more than just one part of a child. It's more than just the academic part of the child here. You've got every aspect of that child, and then you go back and you find out, oh, my God, they saw their mom or their dad kill their mom, and you didn't know that. Now, is that going to make you be a little bit more with that kid? You better believe it. Because, you know, the old adage, I've walked a mile in your shoes, you think, how could could I even come to school if I had witnessed that trauma in, 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 that, in my life? And please hear what I'm saying here. The academic part is important, but there's a lot more important issues with those, those kids. Those kids need to feel safe. They need to feel like somebody loves them. They need to feel like somebody believes in them. And they also need to have somebody there that says, you're not going to do that because I love you. One of the things I learned when I came here was how to talk to a parent. 
parents don't need to be beat down. And they don't need to be made to feel like their child is dumb or their child can't do something or there's something wrong with their child. That's the most important thing I learned when I come here was how to talk to a parent and empathize with that parent and say, you know what, we see these things, but guess what? We're going to get you some help. We're going to, we're going to, we see, okay, this is, maybe they need to be tested. You know, maybe there's some learning issues in there. And we say, and listen to me, a lot of teachers don't even know what an IEP meeting is. Every teacher in this school knows what an IEP meeting is because we're part of that IEP meeting with that parent. If you don't know what an IEP meeting is, it's a meeting to draw up an Individualized Education Program, or IEP. Federal law requires that every student with a disability has an IEP drawn up in a meeting in consultation with the parents. In many schools, only the special education teachers are involved in drawing up an IEP. But at Cottonwood, the special education teachers are resources, not the main teachers of children with disabilities. And I love the fact that we're all inclusion here. None of these kids are pulled out, put in a room, and said, this is special ed. About 35% of Cottonwood students have disabilities, and the percentage has been as high as 50%. I said earlier that I would explain why 90% of the students at Cottonwood come in from out of the district. This is at least part of the reason why. Cottonwood accepts students with disabilities from other districts. Students that in many cases were put in a room in other districts and not taught to read are brought to Cottonwood by their parents. They're not bringing them here because they can read. They bring them here usually because of struggle. Parents bring children from nearby Colgate or even as far as Ada, 34 miles away. We don't, we don't recruit or anything, but they come in, and not all of them struggle, but we have quite a few that are coming in from other districts or transfer students that are moved around a lot, and so they're behind. We don't have trouble with the kids we've had. We, we have trouble when they move in or when they are, are um, transferring the district or calling saying we need help. Mm -hmm. Because the ones that we can start and go through the system and let them get that broad base, they don't struggle. And so that frees our resources and everything up to work on those that do. Most, most of your discipline is coming because they can't function academically. Well, if you get the academics taken care of and they can function, That's true. when they get in high school, they can stay on task because they're not trying to keep from doing something they can't do because uh, of self-esteem. They're not the class clown anymore. Now we do have class clown. Everybody has yes. class clown. But, but they're doing it because they want to. It's not because they can't read or something like that. But... When new students arrive at Cottonwood, they are quickly assessed. Do they know their sounds and how to map them to the letters? Do they know their numbers? What do they know and what can they do? And then teachers take students back to what they call zero, the level where students are successful, even if that's at the very start of letter recognition. And then teachers systematically and explicitly teach students how to read. If we have a child that comes here and they're reading on a first grade level and they're a sixth grader, they come into first grade and they do some reading in there. And you would be amazed at how fast, like Mr. Daniel said, that those skills start picking up. And you would be amazed at also how their self-esteem start pick, picking up. And then the other teachers that have them will be like, man, that, they're just doing awesome. But if a child feels bad about himself, they know they can't read. Mm -hmm. 
I'm sorry. You can hear the passion that Snow brings to her work. I, I had to change my mentality when I came here of it's not what that kid can't do, it's what, what can you do. That passion is what the teachers from Lane saw at Cottonwood. But beyond the passion, they saw the very deliberate systems the teachers have for teaching their students and keeping track of which students still need to learn what. So let's go back to Lane. Here's Beverly Marble, one of Lane's two resource teachers. She came to Lane in 1995. And when I came here, there was no phonetics. I mean, teachers just said, you know, I had teachers just tell me, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't trained in phonetics. So then, then they couldn't teach it. Her fellow resource teacher, Ann Richardson, shows me a door-sized chart. Every row has a child's name and every column is a separate phonological or phonetic skill. This chart shows where every kindergartner, first, second, and third grader is in their progression, whether they can identify the beginning sound of a word, the ending sound of a word, whether they can segment words into syllables, whether they can identify rhyming words, and many other discrete skills. Teachers teach each of these skills in class, and if students master them after the whole group lessons, then they're good to go. But if not, that skill is marked in yellow, and Sharon Holcomb and the two resource teachers assign children to small groups, all working on the same skill across the classes and grade levels. It's easier for us to see it than that teacher going to the other teacher and saying, hey, I've got a group of vowel digraphs. Do you have anybody that needs to come to my group? That's just, you know, that would never happen. Right. Truthfully, that would never happen because they are so busy doing all their things. Most days, students in kindergarten, first, second, and third grade are broken into small groups to work on very specific skills that they need. We have a period where everybody shuts down practically and does reading, Eagle Time. That's uh, one of the aides, mm -hmm. that's, you know, coaches help, that's secretary help. Anybody that's available, we pull them and divide these little children up. Six is a big group. Here's one small group meeting during Eagle Time, named after the school's mascot. And we're working on the ooh sound is in zoo. And they skimmed and scanned their little quick article, not a, not a long read, just a quick instant read, to just find those ooh, ooh. Sailor, tell me what you found that you wrote on your, tell me one word you found. Noon. Noon, how many found noon? Does it stick with our ooze? Okay, I'm gonna put it on my paper. Here's another Eagle Time class. E-A says, what does E-A say? E. E, why does E-A say E? Kind of like E. <laughs> it is exactly like eat. What would I put on the end of this to make eat? Tea. A tea. But Thomas. You get the idea. When Richardson showed me the chart from the mid-year assessments, there was a lot less yellow than at the beginning of the year. And you can see what we want to see is less yellow on here, and you can see the results. It's just, they are almost gone. If we have any yellows, it's usually a child that's moved in or a special needs child mm -hmm. that's going to have these for several years. Once the students have mastered the phonological and phonetic skills, they move on. And then you have the secondary skills, which every child needs the fluency, comprehension, vocabulary. Our school as a whole, and I've been a reading teacher here for a long time, and I hate to admit this, vocabulary is our weakness. 
maybe because of our children's uh, background, um, environment, environment, you know, but our, our vocabulary is the weakest. I want you to notice something Richardson just said. She said she hates to admit it, but vocabulary is a weak area of the school. Vocabulary is a common weakness, particularly in schools where children come from low-income homes. But it isn't every teacher who can be so publicly clear-eyed about what the data show. She happily brags about all the work the school has done to ensure that the children master the early reading skills. But she knows that that isn't the end of the story. The school still has work to do. The folks at Lane know that. They have purchased a vocabulary program for the older children, and we'll see if that helps. But they aren't waiting. They begin with their three-year-olds. Oh, yes, I can, Wolf said proudly. There is no match for what I can do. Just listen. Oh, Let me hear it. Good job. But maybe, listen, listen, Kai, but maybe we also need help from somebody really clever. If they're clever, they're going to be really what? Loud. Smart. Smart. So they ran. It's story time in the three year old room. What you may not have noticed is how carefully the children were being guided to make a howling sound, uh, kind of like a wolf, and how vocabulary words like clever are being introduced. After finishing the story, the students worked on sound formation. Here the teacher is teaching them how to make the sound L, as in letter. Good job. Okay, now this is the hard one. This is the hard one. Get your tongue up. Remember, it's got to be behind your teeth. It's not coming out at me. It's going up. What you are hearing is a school district being very clever about its resources. Jessica Holder, I'm a speech-language pathologist. Holder comes to Lane twice a week to provide speech services to the students. Most speech therapists work with individual children. Holder does work individually with children with intense speech needs, but so many children at Lane need help with their speech that she could never work with them all. So she provides group speech therapy to whole classes and then works with the teachers on what they need to do on the days she is not there. I'll say, okay, on this group, I really want you all to target WH questions or following directions and, um, or this, these sounds, and so they'll carry that over all week long. Her focus isn't just on sounds and phonemic awareness. It's also on general language development and vocabulary. I've found that if we introduce these things to them when they're younger, they're just like sponges. They just take it in, and it's not a big deal. It's kind of like, for an example, fractions. And you think, why would you do numerator and denominator with a three-year-old? Well, because if you tell them that's what it is, that's what it is. And so when they're four, five, six, when they get to fifth grade, the vocabulary is not a problem okay, what's the numerator, what's the denominator? So they may have a fraction up on their, that may be part of their um, vocabulary in the morning. So they may be doing the months of the year and the days of the week, but they may also be doing that. If our teachers up here identify vocabulary that's a problem and these kids are struggling with, we try to streamline it all the way back down to the younger ones and go with it. Because if they hear that every day, it's just going to be a word they know. It's going to be a part of their vocabulary. It's not going to be something they struggle with when we're trying to teach them by the way, when I was at Cottonwood, Daniel said something very similar. If Mr. Walker in fifth grade is having f- trouble with fractions, you know, a lot of people go, well, let's go back to fourth grade. No, we're going to pre-K. 
And we're going to start doing fractions in pre-K. What can pre-K do to, well, we'll show more pie charts. We'll show more, we'll start introducing those things. So then you go to kindergarten. What's kindergarten going to do? So that helps the whole, so fractions is our strong point within a year because we've already got it all built into the system. When I told Daniel that Lane's speech therapist worked with whole classes, he said the occupational therapist who comes to work with Cottonwood already works with whole classes, but now he would try the same for the speech therapist. And then we'll do it with the whole group, and it'll cost the same dollar amount per hour, and I'll get speech and all those to our pre This reflects Daniel's general philosophy that interventions designed for students with disabilities are often really helpful to the more typically developing student. What we found is what works for a special ed or struggling reader works better for a good reader because you're just broadening their bay. You're getting them ready to go. So let's step back a minute and think about what we've heard so far. The superintendent in an isolated rural district set in process considerable improvement that has occurred over about 15 years. He and others in the district began by looking deeply at how their students were doing and reaching out to learn from a more successful district nearby. This involved doing something they called leaving their egos at the door and finding the time and resources to learn, in particular to learn about ways to teach reading that they had not been familiar with. And the learning between the two districts flows both ways. You heard Daniel adopt the idea of group speech therapy, and I heard other examples when I was at Cottonwood. But Cottonwood isn't Lane's only resource, and here's where we have to talk a little bit about money. Oklahoma made national news in the last couple of years when teachers protested the slow starvation of its schools. For example, for 10 years there was no state money to buy textbooks. Teacher pay in Oklahoma is so low that many teachers who live near the border are taking jobs in Texas. Many others have simply stopped teaching. The state legislature upped the pay a bit in 2018 after hearing how many teachers qualified for food stamps and Medicaid. But Oklahoma teacher pay still lags way behind most other states. All this means that there isn't much money for school improvement, or even the basic operations of schools. One of the ways Cottonwood makes ends meet is that it has four teachers on staff who have retired and work for what is basically a stipend. As a result, both Lane and Cottonwood are continually applying for grants. Early on in its improvement efforts, Lane got a grant from the state to send its teachers for training in early reading instruction and to bring in an outside reading coach. Both districts have gotten grants to fund technology, which means they use whiteboards and computers pretty extensively. I mentioned Cottonwood's grant for social-emotional learning. It also got a Federal Innovation Fund grant a few years ago, and more recently, a grant to improve its science instruction. Lane recently received a federal grant that will help them improve their after-school program, and another grant to provide books for classroom libraries. Sharon Holcomb is on a constant search for money. Despite her success, she doesn't think this is a good way to operate. Every school should should have have the same opportunity as what we are working to Mm -hmm. get, because we shouldn't have to put this much effort into getting what we need to teach the, the future generations. Right. One resource Lane has taken advantage of is the Education Department of the Choctaw Nation, which offers summer school for any child who needs extra help in reading and has also developed an extensive early education curriculum and training. Our early Head Start and our Head Start program, we, uh, 
we offer training for those teachers, and then uh, we try to do it on some of the, the uh, professional days with the schools and let them come in. That's Anthony Dillard. Anthony Dillard, tribal councilman for the Choctaw Nation and District 10. The Choctaw Nation covers most of southeastern Oklahoma, and Lane is part of Dillard's district. Holcomb told me the training provided by the Choctaw Nation has been valuable. It's very, really good. very good. It's, they're like national, brain, national yeah, speakers, national speakers, and and their you know their breakout sessions are are very good sessions. I think they're doing a lot on reading this year. Last year they did the phonics dance was one of the programs that they had, and that they 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 actually put on a class for the teachers and gave them the materials when they left. The teachers had materials in their hand to bring back to school to implement that program. As their council member, Dillard is frequently asked to endorse Lane's grant requests, which means he keeps an eye on Lane's progress. Which I got to, to know uh, the superintendent, uh, Mr. Smith, that was there. Uh, I think he left last year, but, but he set a foundation of data-driven decisions, and they have grown that campus and provided opportunities for those kids and, and have had the metrics in place to show their improvement. And, and they're just, for, for the K through eight schools, they're, they're leading charge on some, some quality opportunities for their kids in the Lane District. So you just heard Dillard praise Lane, but also raise a big red flag. The superintendent, Roland Smith, who led the improvement process at Lane, left. We heard from Lane's teachers that they were not prepared to teach reading when they started teaching. But for 15 years, Lane had a superintendent who provided the structures that allowed teachers to improve their instruction. When he left, many of the teachers were worried that the district would not have the leadership to help them. Because it was all new administration coming in. And so I think there were lots of schools that kind of tried to jump on that. And they knew we have good teachers here at Lane. And I think they kind of tried to steal steal teachers, (laughs) knowing that there was no administration to try to hold them here. Some of Lane's teachers have worked elsewhere and know what effect a bad leader can have. If you work under administration that's constantly down on you, second-guessing you, like you can't do your job, um, treating you as if you're a child, then you're like, I can get paid to go do something else. But your heart's in this, and it's a calling. So who replaced the superintendent? My name is Pam Matthews, and I'm the superintendent of Lane Public Schools. Matthews had been a principal in nearby Antlers. This is her first job as a superintendent. The previous superintendent had done double duty as a principal, but Matthews brought with her a longtime teacher to serve as principal. My name is Ashley Willis, and I'm the principal of Lane Elementary School. Both of them had leapt at the chance to work at Lane. Here's Superintendent Matthews. Because it was a dream job, and I know that these teachers are serious about what they do, and I do know that they love their students, and they love each other, and they work so hard together that I absolutely wanted to be a part of it. Principal Willis had an even more personal reason to want to work at Lane. My children have always gone to this school. I live in this area. I live about three miles from this school. And so even though I've taught in two other districts, my children always attended Lane School. And so I knew, I knew what a great school it was. And that's why I allowed my children to go here. Yes, this is a school that has a lot of children that live in poverty, but the first thing that I feel like every teacher and everybody at this school does is love those kids and meet their needs 
that they have. You know, we make sure that they have food and we make sure even there's a program that, that Sharon does that we send food home with those kids over the weekend so that they'll we make sure they have meals over the weekend. And I feel like once you be, meet those basic needs, then they're able to actually achieve their educational goals also. Neither Matthews nor Willis wanted to disrupt the improvement process at Lane. I wanted to go into a school district that had it together because being a first-year superintendent, there were so many things I didn't know, and I knew that I was going to have to surround myself with really, really good people or I wasn't going to survive. And that is absolutely what has happened. They all stepped up. They've showed me what I need to do. They've helped me to learn what to do. And they give me the opportunity to get the uh, professional development that I need in order to be a good superintendent. So it takes all of us working together. Both have worked to continue the culture of a district where teachers are not afraid to say when they need help. Here's Superintendent Matthews again. The best thing you can do is say, I don't know, but I'm willing to learn, and I'm willing to find it out. And I think that's, yeah. that's been one of my main strengths myself, and I've tried to pass that along to everybody that I know. There's nothing wrong with not knowing. What's wrong is if you don't find out and learn to do it like you should do it. It's all about evolving and trying to get better trying to get better as administration, trying to get better as teachers, because that's how we're going to improve our students. And if, and if, the, te if the students see the teachers working to improve and admitting that we made a mistake, but we're going to try to correct that and learn, then they understand it's okay to make a mistake and, and that learning is a lifelong process. Right. So. The teachers I spoke with say their gamble on a new superintendent and principal paid off. Lots of support. Lots of You're not. This has been such up. a stress-free year. Oh, this year has been awesome. Like, you got it. You know what yeah. you're doing. You're not second-guessed as a teacher. Yes. And if I didn't know what I was doing, I would go ask. But nobody's second-guessing me. And anything that has come up, let's just be honest. These two women have taken care of any situation remarkably. With a smile. Mm -hmm. and a With a smile. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. They've been awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Both Matthews and Willis agreed with Holcomb's definition of an administrator's job. I just I feel like as an administrative team, our role is support staff. We are here to support the teachers, whatever that teacher may need. If it's supplies, if it's classroom management, if it's um, help talking to a parent, discussing a, a, a special needs child, that we are here to support that teacher. That's what our role is as administrative, is support. Teachers aren't the only ones supported. Just as at Cottonwood, parents bring their children in from outside the district. Like at Cottonwood, many of the students coming in have a disability and have had bad experiences in previous schools. I spoke with one parent, for example, whose child has epilepsy. She told me that in his previous school, he had been bullied, isolated, and not taught to read. At Lane, she said, he has learned to read and has thrived. She happily drives the miles to bring him and his sister. This is the kind of success that has kept Holcomb working for so long at Lane. Seeing kids succeed, seeing kids that have been thrown out and discarded, and seeing them improve. Seeing kids that came from other schools that have been beat down, and seeing them succeed here. 
Although there's no formal way to keep track of students, Lane keeps an eye on how their students do when they go to nearby high schools. We always have students in the top 10% of the graduating class came from Lane. In every school, that they, whether it be Tushka or Toka or Stringtown, we always have students in that top 10%. So that makes you feel good that we gave them a good foundation here, and then where they and went to high road. school, they were able to... They were prepared for Yes, that. they were prepared, and they were able to, to perform and to be successful. Before I went to Lane, all I knew about it was that it was a tiny dot on Sean Reardon's huge scatter plot of 12,000 districts. State report card data showed that the district was improving considerably, but all that data was just a bunch of numbers. Behind those numbers, however, is a remarkable story of educators being clear-eyed about their strengths and weaknesses. Their commitment to their students means they are willing to make the time and effort to learn from others. They deliberately sought out the expertise that the educators at Cottonwood have developed. I suspect you heard echoes from last season's themes. The importance of focusing on each individual student, the importance of data and research, the importance of leadership. But we also heard about the importance of building the kind of culture that allows teachers to admit they are weak in an area and gives them time to learn more. And we heard about building a culture that values academic achievement, but where educators understand that children have complex lives that sometimes require empathy. In our next episode, we'll go to another rural district that was named by its state as one of the fastest improving districts three years in a row. Among other things, we will hear from a superintendent who is committed to equity and excellence and using the scientific method to improve schools. And we know in the rest of the world and in the other disciplines it works, and it can work for us. Go to our website, www.edtrust.org slash districts for lots of data and information and links. Please subscribe to Extraordinary Districts so that you receive notifications about our next episodes, which were made possible with a grant from Overdeck Family Foundation. And leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Our music is by Mike Patillo, who also recorded and edited this podcast at Tonal Park. And let us know what you think. Tweet us at, at edtrust or email extraordinarydistricts at edtrust.org. If you think this is a valuable podcast, I hope you'll consider contributing to the Education Trust so that we can keep finding and learning from high-performing and rapidly improving school districts serving children of color and children from low-income families. They have a lot of expertise to share. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.